The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. The Consumer Price Index increased 7.7% from October 21 to October 22. That's the lowest rate of inflation since January. Facebook's parent company, Meta, is just the latest tech giant to resort to mass layoffs. In a letter to its employees this morning, CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that the company will let go of more than 11,000 people, roughly 13% of Meta's staff. Republicans did not win with the margin of victory that they expected. There was this talk of this red tsunami, this red wave that would sweep over Congress. That's not what we saw actually materialize. Embattled cryptocurrency exchange FTX has filed for bankruptcy, triggering what could be one of the biggest meltdowns in the industry's history. What we have here is a slow motion train wreck running into a dumpster fire that's full of black swans. This is about as bad of an event as we could possibly imagine because this is the biggest platform on the largest stage with the very person who is speaking to Washington regulators and legislators and trying to convince them of the legitimacy of this industry. Most of the impact of when the Fed tightens, we haven't seen yet. So that's coming in 2023. And the point is, if inflation's coming down anyway, then you're going to get walloped with the lagged effect of the monetary policy tightening when you don't really need it. And you might be causing an unnecessary recession in an era when fiscal policy is going to be hamstrung by the likely divide between the Congress and the White House. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. A lower CPI number for October with inflation dipping below 8% at an annual rate of 7.7 helped to ignite one of the biggest rallies in stocks since 2020, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average gaining 1,200 points in a single session. The S&P gained 5.5, and the tech-laden Nasdaq rose 7.4%. All of that in one day on Thursday. The rally continued Friday with news COVID restrictions may be easing in China, making it overall a positive week for stock investors. The lower inflation number is giving way that the forward rate hikes coming from the Fed may be less aggressive, taking us closer to that terminal interest rate. Inflation and risk assets did very well this week, with the U.S. dollar losing close to 4% in the last two trading days. The rising dollar has been hurting corporate profits and forcing foreign central banks to sell off treasuries, driving up long-term bond yields. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, David Keller, Chief Market Strategist at Stock Charts, joins me. David is positive on stocks going into the end of the year. In in particular, he likes industrials, energy, materials, and financial stocks. Next on deck, Doomberg joins me as we discuss why energy prices are heading higher as green and ESG policies push up the cost of energy. Finally, Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. Well, chalk up another volatile week in the financial markets. Midterm elections, trouble in crypto, and a cooler-than-expected consumer price index announcement set things in motion this week. The biggest catalyst was the CPI surprise that caused yields to fall and stocks to rise in one of the biggest rallies of the past two years. For the Dow Jones Industrial Average, with a jump of 1,201 points, up 3.7%, while the S&P 500 climbed 5.5%, and the beleaguered NYSEC wasn't to be outdone, up 7.35% in its best performance since March of 2020. The CPI moderated its year-over-year change to 7.7% from 8.2%, its lowest increase since January, and below expectations for 7.9%. Core CPI without energy and food dropped to 6.3% from 6.6% for the year-over-year change. Digging into the components of the index, if something was down in September, it was down more in October, like airfares, prices of used cars and trucks, and apparel. If something was up in September, it was up less in October, like new vehicle prices, medical care services, 
transportation services, and food. The two areas that did go up were energy and lodging away from home. The drop in inflation has supported the idea again that we've seen peak inflation and the Fed may be able to slow its pace of rate hikes. That was very evident in the Fed Fund's futures, which were basically 50-50 chance of a 75 or 50 basis point hike next month. That is now shifted to 80% chance we will see just a 50 basis point hike last time I checked the CME FedWatch tool. Directly after the CPI, the 10-year Treasury yield fell 30 basis points to 3.81%, while the 2-year Treasury also fell 30 basis points to 4.32%. While still inverted, the drop was praised by bulls who bid up stocks as a result. Another bonus was a drop in the 30-year fixed rate mortgage by 60 basis points down to 6.62% down from 7.22%. Moody's economist Bernard Yaros had some interesting comments this week on inflation. He said he doesn't believe we are looking at similar inflationary conditions as we saw in the 1970s. Their baseline forecast is for CPI rising 8.1% in 2022, 4% in 2023, and 2.4% in 2024. They said long-run inflation expectations, while inching higher, are well anchored. As such, Bernard believes inflationary psychology in which households expect persistently high inflation has not taken over and have not demanded to significantly see higher wages to compensate, which will make the Fed's job easier than in the 1970s. That remains to be seen as we still have a very tight labor market, according to the Fed. Bernard hedged with similar thoughts that the labor market is the battleground for the Fed. And if wage pressure does not cool, it could spook the central bank into further boosting terminal rates and therefore run the risk of policy errors that tip us into recession. Chris Sheridan interviewed Bloomberg's chief U.S. economist Anna Wong this week, who had some important comments on the matter. She said their model is predicting 100% probability of recession in the third quarter of 2023. Their base case scenario is for a hard recession and not a soft one. Tune in to the Insider Edition with Chris and Anna just this last Tuesday for more on that interview. While the CPI announcement stole the show this week, there were two other catalysts that were worth mentioning. The markets were rocked early in the week by the specter of a liquidity drain as a result of cryptocurrency's volatility. There were also reports of FTX.com encountering a liquidity crunch. Binance said it had signed a letter of intent to buy FTX.com on Tuesday, but it walked away from that offer just a day later, causing even more panic. Bitcoin was down 11.2% Tuesday and down 14% on Wednesday. FTX had a valuation of $32 billion and just filed bankruptcy this week. The Wall Street Journal wrote an article on the subject stating FTX had lent billions of dollars worth of customer assets to fund bets by its affiliated trading firm Alameda Research to the tune of $10 billion, according to FTX's CEO. When that represents almost two-thirds of the amount in customer assets and then the company hit with a $5 billion worth of withdrawal requests on Sunday, well... It was a simple liquidity crunch. Lastly, the midterm elections were this week, but results are still pending. There are still three states left to decide who will run the Senate. Currently, it is 48 Democrat and 49 Republican. A tie vote of 50-50 would obviously go in favor of Democrats with Vice President Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker vote. The Dems need two to tie and the Republicans need two to win. The three state races are Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. Obviously, they need two, uh, but if that is not able to come to fruition this week or soon, it's possible that an outcome may not be determined until Georgia's runoff vote on December 6th. It's the same situation in the House with 198 Democrats and 211 Republicans. 218 seats are needed for control. Counting is set to continue through Friday. According to the Wall Street Journal, it was hoped by investors that gridlock between a Republican Congress and a Democratic president could put a hold on any taxation or spending plans and thus stave off possible inflation pressure due to fiscal policy. Well, that's it for this week's Catalyst with the CPI results Thursday as the main driver over falling yields and a dollar and rising stock prices. Up next, this week's guest technician, David Keller. The Bloomberg economics model is now predicting 100% odds of a recession in the next 12 months. 
Anna Wong is the chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg. And Anna, can you tell us about how reliable this model is? And does it tell us anything about what we could be looking at in terms of severity? So in our model, we took 13 indicators, a whole bunch of macroeconomic and financial indicators. And as of now, the probability has significantly, significantly risen in the last two months. Historically, the Fed has not a good record of engineering soft lending whenever inflation and unemployment deviate from target by this much. Second, the political risk in the next 12 months, I would think that the risk of this recession being a deep one is pretty significant. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Don't let higher inflation erode the value of your hard-earned wealth. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we just got the inflation numbers for the month of October. They dipped below 8% for the first time at 7.7. It was something the market was looking forward to in likes. The markets are up very strongly on this Thursday. Joining us on the program is Dave Keller. He's Chief Market Strategist at Stock Charts. And Dave, you and I were talking just before we went on the air. This was a good day to have an interview. <laughs> there are some days where we struggle to figure out where we can go with the conversation. I, I don't think we will struggle today with a lot of movement so far this morning, for sure. Yeah, I want to talk about two big moves we saw today. We saw the dollar down a little over 2%. I wonder if you could speak to the dollar and then uh, transition over to commodities and what that means. Sure. So I just came back from a nine-day trip to uh, India, and uh, a big part of that conversation was the U.S. dollar, right? Because I, I think for uh, for American investors, for U.S.-based investors, the strength in the dollar has meant a number of things. You know, number one, it's meant going outside the U.S. has not been particularly profitable because the strong dollar has killed any sort of potential returns you'd get from a strong market uh, like India. But it also uh, has essentially been what I'd call a wrecking ball for risk assets, right? The, the strength in the dollar has mirrored the weakness in other areas of the market, like uh, like bonds, like commodities, certainly, and, uh, and, and equities. What's interesting is in October, that was the first month in 2022 where the U.S. dollar did not make a new high for the year. And that's pretty noticeable change in the in the uh, trend or potential change in the trend. We had a lower high in October, another lower high here in early November. You're seeing further uh, weakness in the dollar today. The only way that equities can really mount a meaningful rally, the only way that things like gold could make a meaningful rally is if the dollar starts to weaken. I think we saw the signs of that in October, and now we're maybe seeing the follow through of that trend uh, here in November. You know, one of the things that are weighing on the market, the Treasury has come out, they're going to need to raise over $700 billion in the fourth quarter. The Treasury announced in the first quarter, they're going to need to raise almost $600 billion. I wonder how much of this is weighing on the dollar? Well, and, and, and again, what's what's so interesting about 2022, it's all been a very consistent trend, right? I mean, if you if you look at how the trends have evolved and really rotated from 2021 to 2022. 2021 was one particular type of market. The dollar really started to strengthen at the end of last year, but equities were rising just fine, really driven by some of the largest uh, names, the growth names. 2022 has been has been sort of strong dollar and weak everything else. Uh, and that's been fairly, fairly consistent. Um, you know, when I'm looking at those trends as a technical analyst, it's all about looking at the trends and, and focusing on potential inflection points or when you see a potential change in trend. I think this potential turn in the dollar could be pivotal uh, because arguably the biggest argument for uh, for weaker risk assets has been that that uh, that strong, consistently strong dollar. That starts to change. And I think the picture could very much change. And I think that leads very well into uh, into potential prospects for commodities. Let's stay there on commodities, looking at gold and silver, the impact that the dollar has had, the strong dollar. I mean, I haven't seen the dollar move in the way we have seen this year. And gosh, it would have to be decades when we saw anything this strong. Sure. So if this weakens, could this be 
the beginning of another bull cycle for risk assets like commodities. So if you look at the chart of gold in 2022, obviously it's been it's been a fairly difficult year, right? Gold gold peaked out in uh, March, made a lower high in April, and from there it's just been a fairly consistent downtrend. Uh, and and the reason is it, it's very simplistic if you think about it, right? The gold is denominated in dollars. And if the denominator keeps getting stronger, it's really hard for gold to gain in value, right? Because it's it's priced in in uh, in in terms of a, a currency that is getting stronger and stronger. That has started to change. And if you look at the chart of gold, we made a new low into September, a new 52-week low. We haven't gotten much lower than that. In October and in early November, we bottomed out right around that 16, 20, 16, 30 level. And now we've seen it actually bounce higher back, bounce above uh, 1,700. And today, you know, certainly seeing it rally uh, a, a lot further along with other uh, commodities and uh, and equities and such. I think that could be a potential bottoming pattern uh, for, for gold. And if you look at gold stocks like the XAU, uh, like the HUI, these are uh, indexes that have been struggling uh, because of the weakness in gold. I, I think there's certainly an argument to be made, assuming that dollar con- continues to weaken, which I think it it most likely does. I think that gives space for something like gold to really start to improve in a way we really haven't seen in 2022 uh, yet. Crude oil, obviously related to that as well. And I, I could see broadly speaking, commodities sort of continuing this uptrend that we saw uh, going into this year, sort of stabilized uh, for uh, sort of the summer into the fall. And I, I think you could see that next leg higher in the commodity space, which should be a good tailwind for energy materials and uh, and related sectors. Yeah. And let's talk about energy next. I mean, you know, one of the, I guess, if you look at investments, this year, it was kind of like cash and energy. It was about the only thing that was really working. <laughs> so now that we look at this, the elections are over. I heard they're not going to be draining the SPR anymore. What do you think happens to energy from here? Because supplies are tight. So, and that's absolutely right, right? I, I think when you look at, um, if you look at 2022, if you just look at the energy sector, 2022 has been a fantastic year, right? The way you define the performance of equities in 2022 is very much what areas of the market you've been looking at. And the challenge we have is, uh, I think the, the, um, in the US, we have really a benchmark problem. Our benchmarks are very growth oriented, which means in an era of uh, of high and rising interest rates, which don't tend to be very uh, encouraging for growth stocks like technology, uh, communication services, those sectors tend to struggle when rates go higher. But other areas of the market tend to do pretty well, like financials, um, like basic materials, and certainly energy. And if you look at just the relative performance of energy in 2022, it has by far been the most profitable sector uh, to own. And if you just owned the XLE uh, for the year, you're up, what, 60, 65 plus percent probably uh, at this point, which is which is not a bad year and a down year when the major, major benchmarks are down 20, 30%. The question now is what, what's next? And, and when I look at the charts of some of the largest energy stocks like XOM, like ConocoPhillips, uh, others like uh, DVN and uh, and others, Fang, that have had some really good uh, some really good runs. The reality is they're coming off of fifty two week highs, uh, which is uh, which is unusual given the fact that most stocks are not near their fifty two week high. Overall, though, the trends remain very stable, and I would argue that if oil prices are able to uh, continue to go to the upside, if you see a broader rise in commodities. I think that gives the opportunity for the energy space to continue to lead. So I could see a scenario where equities actually improve as an asset class, but the leadership is more in some of those value-oriented sectors because rates are remaining uh, fairly elevated here. Energy, materials, industrials, uh, and then financials, obviously, which tend to do well. You know, the thing that really surprised me, David, I was looking at my Bloomberg, even though you've seen explosive earnings, I don't care if you're looking at Chevron, Exxon, Royal Dutch, all the big name oil companies, you look at analyst estimates and none of them are really recommending buying oil stocks. I'm really surprised that I think, what are they? Their their weight in the S&P is a little over 5%. And look at their performance. It's hard to believe that Exxon was at 32 and now it's over 100. It's so interesting. And if you look at market history, or if you look back to 1980, if you look back to 1960, the biggest sectors, and I'm I'm going off script here. I'm just thinking from my remembrance of market history. But if I remember right, energy was the largest sector in in, in 1980, and it was probably a quarter of the S and P back in 1960. I think materials were the largest sector, and you think now those two sectors are probably seven or eight percent of the S and P together. 
Um, and and it's our, our benchmarks are dominated by more services, right? Technology, communications, consumer names, uh, and and those sorts of things. So the 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 um, industrial nature of the economy has certainly changed from from an industrial economy to a service based economy, a technology oriented uh, economy, and that's that's what allows those sectors to do very very well. But our benchmarks don't reflect the strength there, right? If our if our benchmarks were weighted like they were back in 1960 or 1980, the S and P would have a dramatically different uh, year and a much more positive year. It's basically the the weakness in the S and P and the Nasdaq have told you how difficult of an environment it's been for growth stocks. And again, it, it, as long as the Fed continues to raise rates, that most likely provides a major headwinds to those uh, to those growth-oriented sectors. And speaking of interest rates, uh, not only are we seeing a downturn in the dollar, but also in interest rates here. What's your take on uh, long-term bonds here? Yeah. So one of the, again, I mean, when I, when I was asked back in January, I was doing an interview and I was asked what, what's the one chart we should use to, uh, to navigate 2022. And I will tell you, predicting that 12 months ahead of time is not an easy task, but it was, it was an educated guess. And I said the 10 year yield. Uh, and, and the reason was because, you know, it was all about leadership and, and seeing where the opportunities may, may lie. Looking back, I, I feel pretty good about that answer because if you look at, interest rates in 2022 and you look at a relative performance of growth versus value you will find that they mirror very very well right when rates are going high value stocks tend to do much better when rates are coming off value stocks tend to underperform growth stocks and that has played out magnificently in 2022 now with the the inflation number we got today rates coming off quite a bit as bonds are rallying right bonds have had a pretty tough year in 2022, actually one of the worst years they've had in history. If you look at the ag or the TLT, uh, they, they're down significantly. And I think for a lot of individual investors, they're actually learning a painful lesson that a bond ETF or a bond mutual fund isn't a savings account. It actually can lose money when bond when the mar bond markets struggle. We just haven't seen a lot of that uh, in recent decades. If you look now, though, I think rates coming off of a fairly elevated level, the 10-year got to around 425, now pulling back, back below 4% uh, with the uh, with the rise in bonds today. I think rates coming off certainly could change the configuration of this market. And certainly, if you see rates come down, I think that's where uh, a bet in somewhere like the NASDAQ could actually make sense, certainly in the short to medium term, if you would see rates come off. What I'm thinking longer term, though, is the Fed is still expected to raise rates. I don't think this inflation number isn't going to change that. It's just going to maybe change the pace of it or certainly change the short term sentiment. I think long term, we still have a lot of work to do. And going into the first quarter of next year, I would still be betting on elevated interest rates and, and be planning for that when you're when you're looking at different areas of the market. Yeah, it's widely anticipated they'll go 50 basis points in December, which would take the Fed funds rate at four and a half. And you have some on Wall Street talking about a Fed funds rate at six percent. I, yeah. you know, I, 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 I struggle with that kind of number because David, <laughs> given the level of debt and the amount of Treasury funding that's going to need to take place, not only rolling over the debt that's maturing, which mm -hmm. is short term, they're talking now that the interest alone on our debt will surpass the defense budget. <laughs> I mean, think about that for a minute. Like that's. That you know, I, I I have a hard time grappling and getting my hands around that how this is going to work. It's absolutely true. What What's funny about it, Jim? If you think about it, though, I remember I remember talking with someone when uh, the ten year was down around half a percent, and we were talking about how crazy it would be for the ten year to get all the way up to two percent. Could you imagine the ten year getting up there? How ridiculous would that be? And then, of course, that's you know a couple. Hundred basis points in the rearview mirror now, as as ten years have gone, as ten years has gone to higher and higher. So, you know, those numbers which seem extreme are are certainly possible, and and that's what I would encourage your your listeners to think about. I you know I I think we often get caught up in a particular narrative, right? Rates are going higher, which means X Y Z to this stock or this sector. I, what institutional investors do is think more about probabilities, right? There's a possibility that the ten year goes up, you know, goes up a couple hundred basis points from current levels. Is that is that reasonable? I don't know, but is it possible? Absolutely. There's also a possibility that the ten year goes down to three percent, down to two and a half again in the next couple months. That's a possibility too. And thinking about what your portfolio may do in that environment, think about how you would manage risk, how you would identify opportunities given some of those potential future paths. That's what equips you much better to deal with a reality, right? If you if you've never thought about 
what would happen if the Fed funds rate gets up to five and a half, six percent, um, then you're going to be much less equipped when it, if and when it would actually happen. So I'd encourage your listeners to think about the different possibilities. Just think about what your portfolio might do and at what level, what's your sort of line in the sand where you may want to make some changes in your positioning to acknowledge the fact that the markets have evolved in a way you may not have expected as much. So given what we're seeing, and, and speaking of growth, I mean, what, what the NASDAQ is up close to 6% today. Yeah. I mean, when have you seen a move like that? Not often and certainly not in 2022. This, this is sort of an unusual <laughs> one. And it's so funny because yesterday I was writing a, a note uh, to uh, to my readers talking about, you know, Amazon and Tesla making a new 52-week low, right? How, how bullish do you want to be when Amazon is making a new 52-week low? Amazon's up about 13 plus percent, I think, so far this morning, coming in again, coming off of a very beaten down level. So that's that's what you have to remember. Some of these sectors are having dramatic moves today. Technology, communication services, both up, uh, you know, over five percent so far, uh, you know, today after the uh, after the inflation number. The question is always sustainability of the of those moves. I always encourage people that on this sort of day, if you were caught on the wrong side of it, which is okay. Number one, remember that's okay. Number two, take a step back, literally take a couple steps back from your monitor and think about the long-term picture. What has really what has really changed? And I think for something like the NASDAQ, you're rallying very good off of a fairly low level. Have we rallied enough to make it seem like there's a, a real change at foot? I, I certainly could see that being a possibility, but I think with uh, with the S and P, with the Nasdaq, there have to be certain levels we, you know, we break above where you would uh, you would sort of validate the fact that the market has rallied enough to uh, to indicate a uh, enough of a move higher. I think the S and P might be doing it though. Thirty nine hundred was a level I was watching at this point. If we close above there, which uh, which is just above, uh, we're we're just above that level right now. I think that could suggest certainly short term strength uh, going forward here over the next couple of weeks. So I, I guess a final question, Dave, given what the charts are telling you, what would you be doing right now? So what's so interesting is now after, as we wrap the midterm elections, we are in the seasonally strongest part of the year. Uh, and that is uh, going back decades, right? If you look at this time of year, a, a midterm election year, right? Sort of the second uh, second year after uh, after a, a presidential election tends to be pretty strong. And November and December tend to be the strongest months. So if we would have a dramatic sell-off over the next six weeks, that would actually be incredibly unusual given the historical trend. So when I'm seeing the rally today, it's certainly related to the inflation number that we got. I'm sure there's a healthy dose of short covering that has been triggered uh, as as I'm, I'm sure investors were very happily short yesterday with things making new 52-week lows. And that's all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're, you're caught on the wrong side of a move very, very quickly. I wouldn't have a problem with taking on some risk uh, going between now and year end because I feel like from, you know, seasonally, this tends to be fairly strong. You're seeing enough individual stocks and it's not just energy. It's a lot of different home builders, right? DHI and others that are having some pretty decent bounces after having a really difficult 2022. And I think betting on some short-term strength makes a lot of sense here. I would be concerned on the medium term, longer term about what happens going into the beginning of next year, because I think the prospect of rate hikes in December and certainly into the beginning of next year will be very real. I don't think interest rates are going to go straight down from here. I think they'll remain fairly elevated. So I'd be looking for opportunities in value-oriented parts of the market, like industrials, uh, that would tend to do pretty well, financials as well, would tend to do pretty well if rates remain high, but if uh, if the dollar starts to come off of that. All right. Well, listen, Dave, tell our listeners about Stock Charts. It's one of the best, uh, I think, charting programs out there. You're the chief market strategist. So tell them about Stock Charts and how they can find out more. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I really appreciate our conversations. Um, our, our goal at Stock Charts is to focus on tools, education, and commentary. We want to empower investors to make better decisions by having great tools to understand the markets education to try to fill in all the gaps about what's happening in the markets around us and then commentary so i'm providing uh you know daily comments on our uh, on our site and through stock charts tv and we also have a really good suite of contributors like john murphy martin pring larry williams guys that literally wrote the books on technical analysis that are providing insights and have weathered a lot of bull and bear market cycles um, so I'd encourage your your listeners to to check out what we have to offer at stockcharts.com. And I'll look forward to providing insights uh, there uh, anytime. All right. Well, listen, Dave, thanks so much. Have a happy holidays and the rest of the year. 
You as well, Jim. Thanks again. Dr. Ed Yardeni joins us today. He is the President and Chief Investment Strategist of Yardeni Research. I don't know that this result is going to really kind of create the gridlock that the the markets would look forward to. I mean, I presume the markets, when market uh, participants talk about uh, gridlock and how it should be bullish, uh, what they mean is the government is less able to meddle in the economy and in the financial markets. And I think we're we're long past that point. The government clearly is a very big player in our economy and in our financial markets, and that's not going to change. It's certainly not going to change as a result of this uh, election. I do worry that there's actually a better side to a gridlock, which is if there's uh, if you have gridlock with too much partisanship and both sides just view each other as enemies and they just can't get along and work things and work anything out, then you could get some pretty nasty government shutdowns. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Joining us on the program is Doomberg. And let's talk about, we're doing this interview on a Tuesday. And it's widely expected that after the elections, the administration will stop draining the SPR. So where do we go from here in energy prices? Could we see another spike back up to where we were during the summer? Well, Jim, first of all, it's great to be back. I enjoyed uh, last appearance and looking forward to another great discussion. And as you mentioned, we're talking on a Tuesday, but it's not just any Tuesday. It is, in fact, Election Tuesday. And while neither of us know the results of the election, presumably by the time this comes out, We'll know more. Per your question about the SPR, as we mentioned in an article that we wrote about it a couple of weeks ago called Pass the Salt, Biden might be done with this round of the draining of the SPR, but a few people understand that baked into legislation of years gone by is the obligation to sell more oil from the SPR in the future. And this is a sort of a dirty little trick of the US legislative process whereby congressmen and senators from both parties, to be clear, in order to game the scoring at the Congressional Budget Office, the scoring of their bills, they mandate out-year sales of SPR from the, you know, of barrels of oil from the SPR, and they're able to count those sales as an offset into the spending of today, even though they're happening seven, eight, nine years into the future. And bills from 2015, 2016, 2017 are now just sort of coming due. And in fact, we have programmed into the cake here another couple of hundred million of barrels of forced sales from the SPR. And so while the inventory today might be 400 million barrels, really the only effective inventory left is 200 million barrels. And so the situation could get pretty interesting. For sure, OPEC Plus knows exactly what's going on. And once the midterms are clear, we shall see. We're particularly bullish on oil uh, for these reasons. But, you know, who knows? China reopening might have a bigger or staying closed that uh, might have a bigger impact on the price of oil than what Biden does with the SPR. Let's talk also about the situation in diesel, because, I mean, the administration is hammering the oil companies. But one of the things that happened during the pandemic, a lot of these smaller, unprofitable refineries got shut down and they did not come back online. Most of the refineries are operating at almost 100% capacity. Let's talk about how did we get in the situation that we find ourselves in on the East Coast with diesel? Because you know, Doomberg, if you don't have diesel, you don't have trucks bringing stuff to stores, moving goods around, whether it's food or merchandise. So how do we get there? So it's a regional problem. And you are correct in the Northeast in particular, or pad one, as it's known in the industry, has in particular shut down a fair amount of refining. This is not an oil crisis, of course, this is a refining crisis. And there's lack of regional refining capacity. But more than that, the big, large refineries that are operating on the Gulf of Mexico can't really service the Northeast because of this peculiarity in US law known as the Jones Act, which prohibits 
foreign vessels from picking up product at one US port for delivery at another. And so can't even ship diesel uh, finished products from the Gulf of Mexico to the Northeast because of this Jones Act. And so the Northeast is essentially the equivalent of Europe in this circumstance, not just for finished products like diesel and gasoline, but also for liquefied natural gas. You know, we've written about this extensively, but Boston is effectively competing with, you know, Berlin for the incremental carrier of LNG, despite being a couple hundred miles from the Appalachian Basin. It's, it's truly incredible what's going on in the Northeast. And again, once the smoke clears in the midterms and the sort of politicking is, has subsided, reality is going to kick in. And you know, we pray for a mild winter in the Northeast because don't forget the Northeast also, because of union pressures and strange history, many of the homes in the Northeast heat themselves in the winter using heating oil, which is essentially diesel fuel with a dye in it. It's the same product. They just sort of are treated differently for tax purposes, which is why there's this special dye that goes into heating oil. And so the diesel crisis is more than just a crisis of supply chains and trucks and food getting to the grocery store and the Amazon deliveries. It's also a crisis of residential heat in the Northeast as well. So if we have a very severe winter, which again, we're hoping that we don't, things could go from frightening to catastrophe pretty quickly. You know, one of the things that most people don't realize, much of the energy situation that we're seeing today, whether it's shortages, high prices, is a result of policy. So if you take a look at my own state of California, we've ruled that by 2035, you can't buy gasoline cars. We just ruled that new homes will not be able to use natural gas. We also passed a bill for, by 2030, the our utilities will have to be at zero carbon emissions, which means they're going to have to shut down their nat gas plants. They're going to shut down their coal plants. In the final nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon will be shut down here. It seems, Doomberg, that everywhere you look, I don't care if it's refusal to build pipelines or shutting down pipelines, which the president did his first day in office. He shut down Keystone. And then we're shutting down nuclear power plants and that gas plants. It's almost like they want to deindustrialize the economy and take us back to a primitive form of living. Well, again, since we're talking on election day, I agree with you that if we stay on the path, that is the inevitable outcome. We do suspect, at least in the U.S., that political intervention will occur. We might see some today. Time will tell. But the old expression we have around here is that which cannot go on forever usually doesn't. And these fantasies will be swept away by politics when enough pain is distributed to the society. Hopefully it's done peacefully. But as we've mentioned on other podcast appearances, you know, on the path from abundance to starvation as riot, the people won't put up with it. And, and we're already seeing, of course, Biden can't put up with $5 gasoline politically. I can't imagine that the Democratic Party is willing to put up with the consequences of what California is proposing. We might even see a resurgence of conservatism in California if such policies are carried through to their completion. So I want to talk about, I mean, if we're trying to make this transition to green, which is wind and solar, why is it that the greens are such against nuclear power or natural gas? One of the reasons that our carbon emissions have come down is natural gas plants. I don't understand the logic behind their thinking there. Well, there isn't any logic behind it. And we're putting out a piece tomorrow, tentatively titled, It's a Fine Mass, where we dive into this really peculiar situation in New York where environmentalists have basically taken offline a natural gas-powered power plant that was crypto mining for <laughs> using its energy for mining of crypto, but in fact being a swing producer of electricity and, a, and sort of a peaker plant with some economic incentives for the owners of that plant. And the environmentalists, of course, had none of that. But as we mentioned in the piece, you know, whatever you think of Bitcoin mining, um, it does produce value for the owners of the plant. And absent some other reason to exist, you know, the economics of a peaking power plant facility, which are needed to, to counteract the intermittency that renewables like wind and solar inevitably bring to a grid, environmentalists are forcing a wind and solar onto the grid and then doing everything they can to make it more difficult for grid operators to balance supply and demand. And the facts are pretty plain, which is anywhere in the world where wind and solar have achieved a significant market penetration, the price of electricity skyrockets and grid stability plummets. And But boy, I tell you what, these environmentalists and their teams of lawyers are very effective at obstructing, delaying, and otherwise increasing the cost of these projects, which inevitably means less and less capital will flow to them. And so the logical outcome of this is that we're going to see, again, like we just said earlier, significant disruptions to our way of life. And then it's just a matter of time where politics intervenes. And we suspect that it's going to be an interesting few years in that regard. Yeah, because if you take a look, I don't care if it's California or New York. I mean, we're very big on going green here. But Doomberg, you know, try to put 
wind turbines off the coast of Santa Barbara or Malibu. It just is not going to happen. Or try to put up a solar farm out in the desert and immediately they file lawsuits because, I don't know, some ground squirrel or, you know, some bug or something might be endangered. I mean, it's like they're for green, but they're not for green. They want to go green, but they don't want any of the things that support green to happen. Yeah. And as we're talking, of course, the COP27 conference just opened up in Egypt in this glorious resort, you know, and the Sinai Peninsula. And it's really amazing, of course, the number of flights, 30,000 people going to this conference, if you can believe that, Jim. And of course, all flying there using, you know, jet fuel on airplanes, private jets, many of them. And as we mentioned in this piece, you know, the airline industry pledged to go net zero by 2050, which of course is impossible. You can't fly a plane on batteries, no matter how much battery development we see in the next couple of decades, that the physics just make that, the energy density just makes it physical impossibility. And yet, even the airline industry is feeling compelled to pretend like they're going to go green. And again, as we said in this piece, in that particular piece, the world is ready to roll the dice on climate change. Most of the rest of the world, China, India, Vietnam, Russia, Brazil, they're all ignoring all of this stuff. And they're going to keep burning fossil fuels and burning coal. And some of them will put some nuclear in place. And they're happy to sell us the solar and the steel and the plastics that goes into the wind blades. And the rare earth metals that go into the motors in the wind turbines, they will have to make a profit off of us on all of these adventures. But if you watch what they do and not what they say, the rest of the world is not really paying attention to climate change and their emissions will overwhelm anything that Europe or the US imposes on itself. And so ultimately, this is all a giant waste of time anyway. You know, the thing that really concerns me is we take a look at oil production itself. I just read the report published by OPEC, which is their oil report for 2045. And they're talking about next year, I think oil consumption will go up by several million barrels a day. And I think it goes all the way up to like 108 million barrels a day by 2027. And that same report, Doomberg, they're talking about their own production going down. In fact, I think one of the bigger stories was OPEC not meeting its production targets by, I think it was something like 3.6 million barrels. So when they cut back and said they were going to cut back on production by 2 million barrels, were they really cutting back or just aligning it to what their true production was? Well, as my good friend on Twitter, I've never met him in life, um, Dr. Anas likes to say, there's three legs of the OPEC stool that you have to consider when you are observing what they're saying. The first is their production targets, which as you correctly articulated, doesn't always reflect reality. And for the past couple of years, OPEC Plus has been substantially underproducing their targets because many in the industry suspected that they don't have the capacity to meet those targets. Then there's what they supply to the market. And many of these countries have their own petroleum reserves, and they could momentarily supply more or less to the market than their production targets and their production realities. And then there's the price that they charge for their products. And while we are looking at the paper price of oil in the physical world, you know, oil is still basically traded between producers and consumers. And while these paper prices might occasionally serve as a benchmark, in reality, the price of oil that Saudi Aramco is selling to China is dictated by what Saudi Aramco and China agree is the price of oil, not what uh, traders in the US ping-ponging futures and derivatives back and forth to each other think that that price should be. And so ultimately, it's a complex thing to analyze. But historically, whenever OPEC Plus has a disproportionate share of production and increased market power, as they do today, this generally means higher prices for energy. So let's take, as we mentioned, we're doing this interview on a Tuesday. So let's assume that politics changes in Washington, the Republicans get in. But Doomberg, as you and I know, oil companies have been bashed. People forget a couple of years ago, they were losing billions of dollars on the price of oil. And now they're talking about, you know, windfall profits tax. If a political change happens, I don't see that happening. But what are going to be the incentives for oil companies to start spending money again, given the uncertainty of the political climate? So I would say, you know, if we do see Republicans take at least one of the houses of Congress, and again, we don't know how it's going to go. Um, we're talking midday on Tuesday. We would view that as bullish for energy because actually all scenarios are kind of bullish for energy, but actually a Democratic sweep would be even more bullish for energy because the antagonism towards the industry would be coming from both Congress and the White House in this case. But if the Republicans win at least one of the House, we think it'd probably be bearish for equities because not much would get done, which means no more stimulus and more fiscal constraint than perhaps the market realizes. But on the flip side, I think if the Democrats win, I would view that as a sort of the surprise outcome to the market. And it would probably be pretty bullish for equities as well because of the prospects for more fiscal stimulus in the coming 
months and years. Not that we trade the markets and not that we give investment advice, but if you sort of pushed me and said, what do you think the outcomes would be in those two scenarios, that would be our answer. But for energy in particular, I don't think the election has all that much consequence because the industry has decided and it's speaking with its wallets, it's going to return cash to its shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. It's not going to increase production. And even if the Democrats win both control of Congress, control of both houses, we doubt that a windfall profits tax would make it through. But if it did, that would only be more bullish for the commodity. It would be bearish for the companies involved, uh, for sure. But yeah, it's, we'll see. It's going to be a fascinating few weeks, no matter what. A lot of volatility. So when you look at the energy complex as a whole, it's made up of many components. You've got the electrical grid, you've got the utility companies, you've got the oil, natural gas pipeline companies. If you take a look at all of this, one of the things that really surprises me, it's not just the government itself that has warred against fossil fuels, but also now you have these policies, ESG policies, where you know the administration was urging you know some of the banks not to even finance energy companies. And of course, that famous quote from Jamie Dimon, whether he was going to finance energy companies. is, And he said, if he stopped, it'd be pure health for the country. Yeah, I think we've seen the peak in pressure from Wall Street in the sort of fossil fuel funding movement. Not so in Europe, of course, because Europe still hasn't felt enough pain to come to their senses, incredibly. But I think the pushback against BlackRock and Larry Fink has been pretty extensive. And even he has backed down a little bit. And I think Jamie Dimon was bang on in his testimony before Congress. And I think more and more people are coming to their senses in that regard. But that doesn't mean that profits from elevated prices will be reinvested. You know, We've written several times about just the cost and the legal entanglements and the permitting and defending old permits. You know, There's thousands and thousands of lawyers who work at the professional environmental movements that exist to radically disrupt the development of domestic energy supplies. No such activism is permitted, of course, in countries like China or Russia. And so our belief is the owners of pre-existing and permanent assets that become bottlenecks will print an enormous amount of cash in the coming years. So for example, today, as we mentioned at the very top of this podcast, refineries and the owners of such refineries, through no action of their own, just happen to own a refinery that's permitted and well run, will be printing cash for a very long time because they are owners of the bottlenecks, the, the sort of pinch points in the supply chain. Similar thing about you know midstream, even though the price of gas, the, the fees that pipeline operators can charge or the movement of natural gas is heavily regulated. Other products aren't so regulated. And I, we, one that comes to mind that was brought to our attention by our friend Matt Stoller at a Substack that he writes called Big, you know, natural gas liquids are unregulated and the owners of pipelines to transport those are just you know, really exerting market power and making a killing almost monopolistic. And so um, broadly speaking, if a bottleneck exists and you happen to own an asset that can relieve that bottleneck or at least participate in the upside, you're going to print a lot of cash. You know, one of the things that really surprised me, I was looking on my Bloomberg, the estimates and recommendations by analysts on oil companies, and it's surprising given their profits, the price of oil now and their profitability, how many analysts are still negative on this sector? I think it represents a little over 5% waiting in the S&P. At one time, it was double digits. Well, if you think that's bad, you should look at the coal companies who are I mean, talk about hated. Some of these coal companies are trading at one or two times 12-month free cash flow. Inevitably, you would imagine that they'll just buy up all their shares and go private in a sort of a company-funded LBO. Like, it's pretty remarkable. Now, of course, look, these types of things are cyclical. And you know, it wasn't that long ago, shortly after COVID, that all these coal companies and oil companies were going bankrupt. And, and so, look, it's a dangerous time. It's a dangerous game. But there's money to be had for people who can pick and choose their spots. You know, coal. It's off its highs now, but it's still 340 bucks. Uh, Newcastle coal, as we talked today, per ton. And, you know, but in the COVID era, that was as low as, uh, I'll pull it up here, but I think it was went as low as 30 or $40 a ton. And so it's coal is still seven times what it was at the height of the COVID panic. And here we are. These companies are still very much hated. And, you know, for a lot of these funds, they're just uninvestable, which means that individual investors who have no such constraints can perhaps take advantage of those inefficiencies. Well, it's amazing to take a look at the cash flow, the dividend yields, the PE ratios in a market that's been grossly overpriced. It's kind of nice to find values in the sector. Well, listen, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow your work, you guys write some of the best stuff on Substack. And it's just amazing the topics you guys cover. How could they do so? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Jim. You can find all of our writing at doomberg.substack.com. We are 100% subscriber supported. We accept no advertisers nor any sponsorships. 
There's nothing wrong with those business models, but we decided that in order to preserve as much editorial freedom as possible, that we are going to run a 100% subscriber-supported model. It's been really amazing. You know, since we last talked, we have climbed to the number one position globally in the finance category on Substack, which is truly amazing and humbling and gratifying all at the same time. This is the work of our lives, and we have found what it is that we are supposed to be doing with our lives. And may everybody listening be so fortunate because the ability to achieve personal sovereignty doing only what you love is very, very sweet and something we intend to enjoy every single day. So really appreciated the opportunity to come back on and looking forward to our next appearance. And it's going to be an interesting few weeks either way, Jim. Oh, it sure is. Well, listen, you know, number one spot is very well deserved. Some of the best writings I've seen on the web. So it was a pleasure having you on the program. You guys have a great rest of the year and happy holidays. Same to you, Jim. Thanks. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Welcome, everyone, to today's Smart Macro edition of Financial Sense News Hour. We're speaking with our Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, Chris Paplava. So, Chris, in this week's investment meeting, which we posted on YouTube and our website, talked about what could be the most bullish thing for risk assets moving forward, especially since we saw such a major rally this week in the stock market. Well, Chris, the, the one thing that we were looking at on Monday was the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar tightening has been a severe constraint on global liquidity, and it's really put a damper on the market. But what we were noticing was when we look at foreign currency performance relative to the dollar, and I track 30 world currencies, I was starting to notice some positive performance on a short-term to intermediate-term picture. And even looking at some moving averages, just to kind of get an idea of breadth, I was seeing roughly around about 75% of world currencies were above their 10-day moving average to the dollar. That was spilling over into roughly 70% were above their 20-day. And as of Monday, we were seeing about half and half, meaning half of currencies were above their 50-day moving average to the dollar and 50% were below. So I was seeing some short-term strength spilling over into intermediate term. And what I was mentioning was that to get confirmation that a dollar top is in is that I'd want to see the dollar index. And I, I track the Bloomberg dollar index because it's more trade weighted versus the normal dollar index that people track, which is heavily influenced by the euro, is to see a break below September, October lows. And if we saw that, then we might see a multi-week, multi-month decline in the dollar going to its 200-day moving average. And that is, in fact, what we are seeing and that is bullish for the dollar because I was showing the negative correlation between the dollar and the S&P. And as the dollar has weakened, we've seen a strengthening in the stock market. Do you think we are now seeing the all clear signal for the stock market now at this point? Um, I did definitely think we're going to have a near term rally here that could carry forward into next month. But I wouldn't say the all clear is in. And the reason for that is the market is behaving as if we have a Fed pivot. And we certainly do not have that. And the market got ahead of itself back in June when it rallied on a supposed Fed pivot. A pivot is when the Fed shifts from tightening to easing. So in in this case, let's just consider a pivot is the Fed being done raising interest rates. And we know that's not the case. The Fed is likely going to do 50 basis points next month. They're likely to do a couple quarter point hikes next year. So clearly the Fed is not done. And what the market is also forgetting is there is not even a mention or a hint of a pivot when it comes to the other side of the monetary tightening that the Fed is doing, which is shrinking its balance sheet. And so what I was showing in our presentation on Monday was that there's a clear link between bank reserves at the Fed and the stock market. So as the Fed is withdrawing liquidity, 
we are seeing a decline in bank reserves held at the Federal Reserve banks, and that is leading to weakness in the stock market. So that is something that the Fed did not touch on, which I think the market is making a mistake by ignoring, and I think could ultimately come to bite us where, yes, a weak dollar is helping the liquidity situation and risk environment, but what is still present and negating that to some extent is what the Fed is doing with its balance sheet. What we also saw from the Fed was a mention about cumulative tightening. And it's true that monetary, and with that lag, we, are, we still haven't seen the full impact of the Fed's actions. So when we're looking at interest rates, interest rates have a long lead time towards the, the economy. For example, mortgage interest rates typically lead housing by roughly at least a year. So the recent high in interest rates for mortgage rates will likely continue to weigh on housing well into next year. Further, when we typically look at the change in interest rates, that typically leads LEIs by at least a year. So I'm expecting leading economic indicators to continue to roll over into next year, which should imply also weaker corporate earnings, as well as a potential increase in delinquencies on various types of loans, as well as an increase in corporate bond spreads as default risk for corporations begins to pick up. So some of the near-term positives we're seeing in the market, we see a potential top in the dollar. Inflation is decelerating. Midterm elections are typically favorable for the stock market as well. We're in the midst of a year-end rally. Just seasonality lines up for a short-term bullish view on the market. But looking out more long-term, let's say, uh, you know, moving into 2023, as you noted, there's still some structural issues that we need to deal with. Of course, the Fed is still in a tightening posture. They're not at a point of pivoting. Uh, They may just downshift from 75 basis points to 50 basis points again at their December meeting. But that's not a pivot. That's just a deceleration in the pace of tightening. And they're still engaged in quantitative tightening, all of which you have mentioned and you discuss in the weekly investment meetings that are more long-term structural in nature headwinds for the market. And that's correct, Chris. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, the market wants to uh, recover. It wants to head higher. But, you know, I think it's it's a little short-sighted, just like what we saw in June. Think about it too. Yes, we decelerate to 7.7% inflation rate annually in October, but we're already seeing oil prices go back up recently. And on a month-over-month basis, uh, the rise in oil prices led to a pickup in the inflation rate. So we're nowhere close to that 2% inflation target. So I do not think the Fed is going to declare all clear here, particularly as the economy still is adding jobs. So as long as the economy is adding jobs, as long as inflation is not at the Fed's 2% target rate, I think the Fed continues to lean against this market. And now again, the Fed wants the tighter financial conditions to bring about weaker demand. A higher stock market is not tighter financial conditions. That is the opposite. So I, I do think the Fed would be concerned if we see a runaway stock market, which again, I don't think is going to happen. But it does kind of tell you that this market should have a little half-life to it or limitation in terms of how high, how high it can rally. So I think investors need to really temper their enthusiasm. While this is a certainly welcome relief rally, I do think we need to take this with a little bit of grain of salt. Chris, on that note, would you mind telling our listeners about some of the services that we provide here at Financial Sense Wealth Management? Sure. We provide a whole host of financial services. We provide financial planning, wealth management. We also do 401k servicing, consulting, and we also assist corporations in managing their cash balance, particularly with interest rates at 0%. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with our financial advisors, what would be the best way to do so? They can give us a call at 888-486-486. 3939. Chris, it was a pleasure speaking with you again on Smart Macro. We look forward to speaking with you in another two weeks. Well, that concludes this week's edition of Financial Sense News Hour and our Smart Macro segment with Chris Paplava. Again, if you'd like to give him a call to discuss his investment outlook or to speak with any of our financial advisors, you can do so by giving us a call at 888-486-3939. We do have a weekday premium program as well called FS Insider. If you're not already a subscriber and you would like to listen to more of our podcasts during the week and can also be accessed on our website or through a podcast app of your choice on a mobile device. If you're not already a subscriber, just go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour, 
We hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk